Well, good morning, church. You guys thought you were rid of me. You thought, oh, Brent's back. Cool. No more Tyler. Ha <laughs> ha, joke's on you. There you go. Hey, my name's Tyler. I'm the director of student ministries here. It means I get the privilege to serve with our 7th through 12th graders. Uh, and I absolutely love it. I love uh, being able to, uh, to lead that ministry. And I just want to reiterate what Ken was saying. Um, man, I sent out an email last week. And now I, I have too many prayer partners. I like don't know what to do with you all, so I might just start doubling up kids, like you know, like my kids maybe, just because like, they need prayer, because pastors' kids. But thank you so much. Uh, and so if you're like sitting and like, why isn't Tyler emailing me back? What's going on? Uh, just know that I, I'm, I'm trying to find kids for you. So um, we just so teenagers invite your friends so they can be prayed for. There you go. Right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, if you have kids in here, we love that you have kids in here. We want you to feel at ease and know that if they're a little rambunctious, it's totally cool. It's totally cool. And uh, with that, our kids' ministry is going to be regathering uh, starting next week. How great is that, right? Uh, I know. You can, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, with that, though, we need your help. We need your help to be able to invest in these kids. And one of the things is we've been kind of looking it over and going, okay, what do we need? Is, is if you are a, a family with kids, we need you to consider if you could serve maybe once uh, about every four weeks to six weeks. If you can give a Sunday and you can serve in the kids' ministry. It doesn't even have to be in your kids' area. It could be in a different kids' space area. But to be able to invest into the lives of the kids, we can regather effectively and, and launch like full strength, all go. And maybe you're an empty nester or or maybe uh, you, 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 whatever's going on in your home, and you're like, hey, I've got some time. I can invest into the lives of these kids. Um, I just think about how impactful it is as a father to watch uh, Dale in, in our Awana ministry give my kid a fist bump and say, good job, and speak. Oh, man, I didn't plan on crying. To speak into my kid's life, or, or Mrs. Abby, to speak into my, my son's life uh, in, in cubbies and those kind of things. Uh, I can't do this on my own. I need my church. I need people to come around and invest into my, the lives of my kids in the way that other people are investing into the lives of, of kids. And so would you consider partnering with us as a church to invest into the lives of students and in the lives of kids? Because it matters. That's why we're a fight for family church. Because it's important and it matters and we need you. Okay, I'm done. All right, there. Okay. All right. Would you guys pray with me and let's dive into Nehemiah 5. God, I thank you that you know us and that you love us and that you want to be in relationship with us. God, I pray for our regathering for kids ministry. I pray for the, the open house today, all these things. God, that you, this would just put a smile on your face. That you look down and you see, you see the children coming to you. God, our prayer as a church is that our children would continue the legacy of faith that we're trying to lead, that we're trying to lay down for our kids God, I pray that we would be a church that, that loves well, that leads well, that points all of our kids to you because you are the most important thing in our life. God, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that these words would be yours and not mine. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we've been working through a series called Rebuild, and we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. And I, I, I love the book of Nehemiah, and actually, Nehemiah is a great uh, book of the Bible on leadership and what does good, godly, wisdom, leadership look like. But as I'm thinking about it, you might be sitting there going, okay, man, I, I'm not necessarily a, a leader. Um, and I believe that's not true. I believe we're all leading 
in different ways. It might be our family. It might be in our job. We might be just simply leading ourselves, kind of going, okay, how do, I, how, do I, how do I live a godly life? What does this look like? And so there are principles in this idea of Nehemiah, in this book of Nehemiah, that I think are so important that we can take and we can apply to our lives uh, as we go through this. So before we dive into Nehemiah 5, which is where we're going to be hanging out most of the day today, I just wanted to recap through uh, verses 1 through 4. And, and actually, even before we go through Nehemiah 1 through 4, I wanted to actually back us up a little bit more because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah originally were actually written together. They were, they were kind of uh, combined together. And so to understand all of what's going on, we kind of have to look back even before Nehemiah. And so there was a, a point in time in history where the people of Israel, they were sinning against God. They were saying, we're going to do things our own way, we're not going to listen to what the, the, the law says. We're not going to listen to God. We're going to do things our own way. And so God said, okay, fine. And then and that's the case Then he sent in this, this army that they came in and they captured Israel. And they took them away and they sent, they sent them off to different parts of the surrounding worlds and all those kind of things. And so they were scattered. And then there hit this point in history, uh, about 60 years earlier, give or take, uh, before Nehemiah, there was a king and he allowed Zerubbabel, okay, talk about fun names in the Bible, Zerubbabel allowed Zerubbabel to take a remnant of the, the Israelites back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple of God. And so Zerubbabel, he gathered these people, they got, went back, they started, they faced all kinds of opposition, but they began to build up the temple, and, uh, and things happened. You can go in and read that, it's in Ezra, uh, you can, and just all kinds of different things happened. But it, essentially, they, they went back and they started to build. And so it, when Nehemiah came back, it wasn't like the first of the Jews back in Jerusalem. And then after Zerubbabel, there came Ezra. And Ezra returned to the people, and he began to return Torah to the people of God. That's the law of Moses. That's the law of God. Began to get people to begin following God again. So they had the temple. They were able to begin to do the sacrifices. And then Ezra came in and was like, hey, we need to return to Torah. We need to return to God's law to worship God in that way. But that only lasted a little bit because there was heavy influences from the world around them. And they began to drift away, they began to walk away, they began to fall away, which leads us to Nehemiah and this act where they're going, we need to build this wall so that we can, we can, we can restore Jerusalem to be the city on a hill, to be a light for, God, or light for God among the nations as opposed to being constantly influenced by it. And so Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer for the king Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes, um, as cupbearer, basically he was testing the, the wine, testing all the stuff. So that way, if anybody was trying to poison Artaxerxes, uh, Nehemiah was the one that would take the bullet, essentially, as the cupbearer. It was a very respected position in that time. But it goes in, as we read earlier in, this, uh, in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, he was downtrodden, is what uh, I think it says in the King James Version, which this is the NLT, but we'll go with that. Uh, he was downtrodden, and so like, he, was, he was sad. And Artaxerxes was like, dude, what's going on? I think that's the proper term. He said, dude, what's up? He said, dude, what's going on? And he's like, um, my city is in ruins. And God used Nehemiah and the bravery and gave him this vision and this call to essentially say, I want to go back and I want to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes is like, all right, go do it. And here, here's some money. And here's some armed guards to go up and go do it. And they went, and Nehemiah, we see in, three, in verse, or chapter 3, Nehemiah begins to rally the people together. 
He rallies the people together and he's like, let's build this, let's do it together. And we see this long list of all these people who are building in front of their homes. They're building in front of, of where they live and they're beginning to build this wall and it begins to be restored and begins to bring Jerusalem back to uh, wholeness in a way. This is Nehemiah's given task, but along the way they face opposition. They face opposition from the surrounding people, which actually is the truth that I want us to, to, to remember and, and hear this and understand this is, is this. When we obey God's calling, when we obey God's calling, we will always face opposition. Let me say that again. When we obey God's calling in our lives, we will always face opposition because we have an enemy that does not want to see God's mission or God's kingdom succeed. And so if we are following God's calling in our life, whatever that might be, it might be within your family, it might be within your workplace, it might be within whatever it is, the calling that God has laid in your life, whatever he's given you as a calling, if we are following what he's called us to, we will face opposition. I think sometimes as Christians, when we begin to face this opposition, we're like, what am I doing? Like, I'm doing what God has called me to do. And we're surprised when we face opposition. But actually, I think that we should look and go, okay, all right, I think I'm doing something right. Because Satan doesn't want God's kingdom to expand. When we are obedient as Christ followers to God, we should never be surprised at opposition because Satan is at work. And so Nehemiah squares off against two guys with super cool names. Sanballat, I don't even, is that like a ballet? I don't, I don't even know. Sanballat and Tobiah. And first it starts out, they mocked him. They began to mock the people of Israel and like, what are you doing? You guys are, what are you doing? And when the mocking didn't work, because they were like, no, this is what God has called us to do. This is what we're going to do. When the mocking didn't work, they actually moved to threats. And so Nehemiah and the Jews rallied together, and some built the wall, and others just stood guard with their their swords and their spears. And God began to use the Israelite people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, of Israel. And that brings us to Nehemiah 5. We see this amazing unity happening within the, the walls uh, they're building, even though they're being attacked from the outside, they're being mocked, they're being threatened to be attacked and all these things. We see this unity that they come together in the midst of craziness, in the midst of difficult times, they come together. And God had given Nehemiah this calling and he responded and rallied the people together. We love these kind of stories. We love stories of the underdog or the, the, the comeback kid stories, right? We love to see these stories and the Jews, they faced this opposition. But the Jews actually began, in, we see in Nehemiah 5, they began to face another opposition. And this opposition was not Sanballat, and it wasn't Tobiah. It wasn't even people outside the walls. It was people inside the walls. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. It will be up on the screen, but I encourage you, we're actually going to work through all the way through chapter 5. And so I encourage you, if you can, open up and follow along. But we're going to walk through... What happens here in Nehemiah 5? Verse 1, it says this. About this this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during this famine. And so we see the people begin to cry out. 
Now, this isn't a cry out of complaining necessarily where they're going, oh, what's going on? But they're crying out because they're, they're, there's, they're in difficult times. They're in a dire situation. There's a famine in the land. And in this, this culture, is an agrarian, or agrarian culture, and if we don't grow food, we don't eat. And so it was so important to be able to grow food. And in times of famine, it was deadly for so many people. And so there's this cry that comes out. And the, the Jewish people are like, we don't have the money, we don't have the ability to have the food to survive. And others are like, we had to mortgage our fields and our vineyards and our homes just to get food. And then it goes on. Verse uh, 4, and others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and our vineyards just to pay taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our own children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So the king is still charging taxes. It says the wealthy Jews were charging them interest. It goes on later and it says they're charging them interest and not being generous with their own family and needs. And it led to this, this horrible situation where it got so bad that with paying taxes and deciding between food, they had to begin to do unthinkable things. They began to sell their children back into slavery. They couldn't even, they couldn't even mortgage their, their homes or anything else because they didn't have anything else. And they were just trying to survive. And yet there were wealthy people within the community that from the same families that wouldn't show generosity, that wouldn't begin to even help them because they were helpless and they needed help. I think sometimes we can get into a place of comfort or in a place of I need to, to hold on to what's mine and, and we lack the, sometimes generosity in seasons where people are crying out. We're crying out for help. And are we listening? Are we listening to the cries? Of the helpless. I believe as Christians we're called to have attentive ears to the cries of the helpless because we were helpless. And when we were helpless, God sent Jesus when we could not do anything. And so as Christians, we need to begin to tune our ears to hear the cries of the helpless. It goes on in verse 6. Nehemiah says, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. Nehemiah heard these complaints. He heard these things, and it grew up in him. There was this anger. But then I love this. Look at verse 7. It says this, after thinking it over, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is, is essentially, uh, I consulted with myself. I began to think about it. As we hear things, as we hear about injustices in the world, as we see people who are being mistreated and the helpless, it should rise up in us an anger, an injustice. We see it and go, I, this is not okay. But it doesn't give us license to act out in, in any sort of lack of control. Nehemiah says, after thinking it over, after consulting with myself, as he, he took time to think about it, I'm sure he took time to pray about it. It says this, I spoke out against the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging them interest when they borrow money. And then this happens. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problems. Yikes. So Nehemiah here, he's responding, he's angry. Why? Because Jews are mistreating Jews. It's one thing for the outside enemies to mistreat and mock. But God-fearing Jews who should know better are mistreating other people. And so after thinking it over, Nehemiah, he doesn't respond out of anger or out of any sort of lack of control. 
But then he goes and he says, you are hurting your own. Can you think of modern examples of this? How often within the church do we eat our own? We lack, uh, we have disagreements or judgments, and how often are we unwilling to extend grace in areas of our lives where we desperately need grace? I know I'm guilty of it. I'm constantly in this place of reminding myself, man, I need to extend grace because I want people to show me grace. And God has shown me so much grace. I want to be able to extend grace. As Christians, we ought to know, we ought to be people who extend grace, and yet we miss the mark at times. We miss the mark. So then it goes on and says, Nehemiah, he calls a meeting. Like he rallies the people together, and he's like, hey, let's have this meeting. Could you imagine being the nobles? Like, hey, we got this issue. Let's have this meeting. Let's call everybody together, and then let's talk about it. I don't, I don't know about you, but if, like, that was me, when people call me to the carpet on some of my actions, my first reaction is defensiveness, right? I'm like, no, let's fight, right? So he calls this meeting, and then verse 8, this is what it says. At the meeting, I said to them, We are doing all that we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you are selling them back into slavery again. This is a powerful statement. How often must we redeem them? Pause for a second. Here's the scenario going on. The Jews are coming back. They're being returned out of slavery. They're being returned to Jerusalem. And there's what's happening and what's going on is the, the, the leaders in uh, uh, Jerusalem, so Nehemiah and, and the, his, his team around them, they're redeeming. They're actually going out and they're buying back their brothers and sisters from slavery, from the pagans, from the people around them. They're, they're spending this money to bring people back. And then what's happening is, is because they can't eat, because there's this famine, they ended up that the, the Jewish nobles are actually having to sell back out into slavery. And so Nehemiah's going, guys, we just redeemed these people. Why are we selling them back into slavery? Why are we doing this? Why are we lacking generosity to be able to do this? How often must we redeem them? Can you understand why Nehemiah is upset? How often must we redeem them? Then Nehemiah calls them to account. It says there in verse 8, and they had nothing to say in their defense. They had nothing to say in their defense. They stood their silence. Verse 9, then I pressured further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? What he's saying here is, man, we should know better. We should know. And yet we're the laughingstock among the, the, the nations around us because we should know better. And we claim that we know better. And yet we aren't living that way. He says, what you are doing is not right Should you not walk in the fear of the Lord? Underline that passage, if you have your Bibles. Underline that passage. Should you not walk in the fear of the Lord? 
Verse 10, I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending to people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them every day and repay, or this very day, and repay the interest that you charge when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. He says, you need to return it back. So then the wealthy throw a huge fit and God smites them. Oh, oh no, that's not right. Verse 12, it says this. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and I said, if you fail to keep your promises, may God shake you from your homes like this and from your property. And the whole assembly responded, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. You see what Nehemiah did there? Wisely, he said, no, 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 don't promise me. Promise God. How often times do we make promises? How often times do we say, I'll be better, I'll do better, and we say it to other people, but in reality, we need to go before God. And we need to say, God, I repent, I come to you, I lay myself before you. And so that we see the nobles, they come and they say, yes, let it be. The word amen isn't just like to close out a prayer, it means, yes, Lord, let it be. And so the whole assembly, think about that picture of unity, right? There was repentance, and in that repentance, out of that came unity. Because repentance leads us to unity. It says the whole assembly, everybody in the assembly said, amen, let it be. That means it was the nobles, those that were confronted. But it also means those that were there going, yeah! There was unity. How desperately do we need unity? In the church, as we're rebuilding, in our nation, in our, in our world, how bad do we need unity? And it comes from this place of repentance, of going, it's not me, it's got to be God. And it says, then they did what they promised. They didn't promise it to man, but to God. And then the passage goes on into this interesting passage in 14 through 19 where Nehemiah is talking to, uh, about the governors, the people in the past, uh, and the way that they mistreated the people or the way that they took advantage of people. And this is a great example of godly leadership and what it looks like. But also just there's, there's so many key principles that we can grab in this passage here that I, wanna, I want us to go through. But I want to read it. And it starts in verse 14. It says this, For the entire 12 years that I was the governor of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew our official food allowance. Right? So there is this allowance, there's this way that, that as the leader of Judah, he could go in and say, hey, this is mine, you need to give this to me, I want to take this. But it says he didn't do that. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides the 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. And this is what I want you to hear. This is what I need to hear. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. Because I feared God, I did not act that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all of my servants to spend time working on the wall. 
I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors in others, from other lands. Verse 18, the provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, a large number of poultry, and every 10 days we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. As we read this story, as we wrap up here, I want to just tie this bow on this passage in this, in this, as I've been thinking about this idea of rebuild, right? I think that there are powerful truths in here that we can pull out of it. And the biggest truth, truth that I think we should pull from this passage is this. <clears throat> how we view God determines how we live our lives. Let me say that again. How we view God determines how we live our lives. Twice in this passage, these 19 verses, Nehemiah calls us to walk in the fear of the Lord. He says, what you're doing isn't right, mistreating people. Should you not walk in the fear of the Lord? It says that in 9. It says, I press further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? This is a call that Nehemiah is saying when he says walk in the fear of the Lord. This is a call of Nehemiah is saying we need to place God on the throne of our lives. This idea of, of fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, this isn't like a woe is me, like please don't smite me God. This is, a, this is God, you are holy, you are good, you are worthy of this praise and everything. My life, I want my life to be consumed by you because you are God, because you are holy, because I have a, a fear of the Lord. That's what he's calling us to. That's what Nehemiah is saying. That's what God calls us to, is to be people who walk in the fear of the Lord. We say God is holy, God is good, God is worthy to be praised, he is worthy of my life. He's holy and he is righteous. And we see Nehemiah point to this fact, the fear of the Lord, as to why he doesn't mistreat people. In verse 15, the former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of people. But because I feared God, I did not act this way. This applies to us today. How we view God directly affects how we live our lives. How we view God directly affects how we treat people. Do you hear me? How we view God, a proper view and a proper understanding of who God is, will affect every area of our life in how we treat others, how we treat ourselves, how we treat the world around us. How we view God is the most important thing about us. If I don't believe that God loves and he cares for me enough to provide all that I need, not want, but if I don't believe that God loves and cares me enough to provide all that I need, then I'm going to hold on to things. I'm not going to be generous. And you know what? This is a struggle for me. This is just being real. Oftentimes, I question whether or not God will come through. Just being honest. And this is the area where God has really been hitting me with this passage and speaking this truth into me. How I view God. Do I trust that God will provide for me? Do I trust that God will come through even when it doesn't look like he will? And even if it doesn't come through in the way that I want it to, will I trust God? Because how I view God determines how I live my life. It determines how I treat people. It determines how I spend my money. It determines the words that come out of my mouth. 
How I view God determines how I live my life. If I believe that God owes me something, that's a dangerous place to be. I'm going to expect things owed to me from people, and I may even mistreat people to get it. If I don't believe that God created me in his image, then I am going to see his creation. Every, I'm not going to see him, everybody else as his creation. Kelly, one of our youth pastors, says it this way. If you view yourself as junk, you're going to treat other people as junk. It's good, right? If we view ourselves as junk, not made in the image of God, his creation, imago Dei, then we're going to treat other people in that way. We need to have this proper understanding of who God is. I could go on and on, but my call, my, my urge, my prayer is that we begin to explore who God is. Now, this isn't just something I could like, sit here and go, like, hey, he's this, 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 and this. This is a journey that we have to go on. This is why we have to be in his word. The reason we have the Bible is so we can know God. We can know his characteristics. And so when we face all the junk in life, when we face all the difficult things in life, we can say, no, my God is good. My God is holy. My God will come through. My God means he's, he has a plan for my life. When we know these truths, when the lives of the enemy, when Satan comes and he lies at us, we can combat it with the sword of the spirit. We can come back and say, no, 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 that's not what my God says. He says I'm created in the image of God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, even when I face temptation, he will always give me a way out. So if we're sitting here going, I can't, I just, I just give in every time. God always gives you a way out. We can rest in that truth. We need to know these things. We need to know who God is because God is holy. He's set apart. He is worthy to be praised. He is beyond our comprehension. If we could understand who God is, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. God is holy. God is righteous. And he calls us to righteousness, to walk in his righteousness that he gives us, that he puts on us through Jesus. But he calls us to live lives of righteousness because God is righteous. We can live righteous because he gives us his Holy Spirit that allows us to do that. God is loving. God is loving. When we see God as a loving God who cares for us, who knows us, it allows us to soften our hearts, to love other people. Do you see? When we understand who God is, it affects every area of our life. God is loving. God is just. When God sees things that are not right, he's like, no, stop that. And when we see things that are not right, we can say, no, stop that. When we see things in our own life, we can go, no, stop that. Because God is a just God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. So when we say, when we see those things in our life and we're like, no, stop that. And then we mess up because we're imperfect. God is merciful. Man, some of us in this room need to see the mercy of God. We need to experience the mercy of God because you last night were beaten up on yourself. You need to see God for who God is, that he is a merciful God, that he loves you, that he knows you, that he's calling you into something better. He says, I don't want you to stay there, but I want you to know that I'm a merciful God and we can move forward. When we see God for who he is, it affects every area of our life. He's a jealous God. Now, we don't like this one. We, we see this one and we're like, mm -mm, where are you going with this, pastor? God is a jealous God. What does this mean? It means he wants you, all of you, every part of you, 
He wants you to be in relationship with him, to put him in the proper place on the throne of our lives, not ourselves, not something else. He wants to be on the throne of our life because he is holy, because he is good, and that's where he belongs. He is king. He is Lord. He is perfect. And I love this one. He's a consuming fire. Rest in that for a second. Think about that for a second. Our God is a consuming fire. Like it just burns up. He's a consuming fire. He's not like, I'm just going to char this a little bit. He's like, no, let's roast this baby. That's what he wants with our lives. That's what he wants in our lives. He wants to be a consuming fire so that every part of us is all-encompassing about Jesus. Because our God is a consuming fire. And some of us are content with a candle. And he's like, nah. Mm Mm-mm. Our God is a consuming fire. When we are people who walk in the fear of the Lord, we're able to realize this next truth in this passage. As we walk in the fear of the Lord, we love like Jesus. Which is what we're called to do as Christians, right? We become more concerned about God and his agenda. We're able to lay down our life, lay down our own agenda or our own rights, and really love people well. Do you see Nehemiah? He loved the oppressed in this passage. We see that because it burned with anger, and he went, and he's like, no, this is wrong. But he also loved the oppressors. He loved them enough to call them out in their sin. Now, this is something we have to be careful with in our lives, but it's so easy that we can look and be like, yeah, I I love these people, but not these people. No, we're called to love everyone, to call out and be like, man, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. Nehemiah, he loved everybody in this. Why? Because his focus was on God. Church, we need to focus on God, on Jesus, not ourselves. We need to walk in the fear of the Lord. Like the author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this. How? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. When Jesus is our main focus, he perfects our faith. We grow in our faith. We love well. We lean into the calling that he has for us. We put God in his proper place. And the last point is this. Church, I believe we're called to be humble. We see at the end of Nehemiah 5, he relies on God. Even in the anger, even in all of the stuff that's going on, he says this, Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. Nehemiah knows where his strength comes from. He knows where it comes from. It comes from God. And he says, God, I'm not looking to other people. I'm not looking to other things. I am looking to you and you alone. God, would you remember me? Remember all that I have done. He humbles himself before God and he trusts that God will provide all he needs church as we walk through this season of rebuilding let's be people who walk in the fear of the lord 
put Jesus back on the throne of our lives. Let's be people who know who God is and let it flow from every area of our lives and love well, even when we face opposition, whether it's inside the walls or outside the walls, wherever it is when we face opposition, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's be humble and trust that God is who he says he is and he loves you and he knows you. Church, as we rebuild, we have to rebuild on the right foundation. And that foundation is God Almighty. As we rebuild, any other foundation will fail us. Any other foundation other than God will let us down. Our foundation has to be God. Any other foundation is futile, only Jesus. God, I thank you. That you allow us to walk in the fear of the Lord. God, as we rebuild, I pray that we would rebuild on the foundation of you, of your son, of the truth that comes, that's found in scripture. I pray that we would seek to know you. Because how we view you determines every area of our life, every way that we spend our time, the way that we speak out in, 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 with our words, the way that we spend our money, the way that we, 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 we lead our lives, God. I pray that you would be the king of our hearts, that you would sit on the throne of God. God, as we take just a few minutes in this time of worship, as we sing these songs that are focused on you, God, take the attention off of ourselves, take the attention off of our situation, take the attention off of, of the things going on, and God, just help us to focus on you. Lord, be our foundation. Amen.